Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Let's read from Ephesians 2, verses 13 to 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. There is the entire sweep of salvation in these three verses. The problem is posed that there is enmity. The nature of that enmity has to do with the dividing wall. And on the sides of the dividing wall, we might say there are two groups that Paul seems to be talking about Jews on one side, that they in some way are close to the law. But we know that in a way that really doesn't help them. And then there's the Gentiles. They're far away from the law. That didn't help them. The problem then is this orientation to the law that is undone, this hostility. And this then is the Christians, that problem is resolved in Christ, that peace is established. For the Christians, the law is no longer that to which they are oriented. But I think we could make law, we can kind of trivialize law, that for Paul, the thing that he's describing is inclusive of all people. So by law, he doesn't necessarily simply mean the Jewish law, but in some way the law that all people are fallen under, the law of sin and death, and that this then is the controlling factor in their lives. The law is no longer that which holds people in bondage? Well, that's all people. The law is a dividing wall, the hostility. And he describes this hostility elsewhere, hostility to God and hostility to one another. Maybe we could trace it through three psychological types or three orientations that rather than Jewish law, we might think of law in general. We might just say culture. We might say cultural norms, maybe just father figures or authority. And how we view the world is determined by our orientation to these father figures or this cultural or symbolic world. At its most personal, the coordinates between the mind and the body. That is, it has to do, it pertains to a hostility that arises within our own selves. And even our perception of reality. I think that that's what Paul is describing. We're caught up in a misperception of reality. And what might be called the inside-out person. Somebody who is completely subject to the valuation of cultural norms. The law. You know, there really is no interior conflict. In fact, they are guilt-free. We don't normally talk about this in Christianity. We often focus on the guilty conscience. But understand that Paul describes himself, he he was guilt-free before he was a Christian as a Pharisee. There is the person, you know, that will begin to have guilt, and we'll talk about that type. But this first type of person is, we might say, just inside out. That is, that the individual is who knows 
who she is or who they are based on the scale of values of the law. Paul, during a phase of his life, he says that he was without fault, without guilt, consciously, in regard to the law. He says that he considered himself righteous, zealous, beyond his peers, and bearing the highest qualities, circumcised the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said, I was perfect. I didn't have a guilty conscience. I'm feeling good about myself. But of course, this is during the time that Paul is arresting and presuming and aiding in killing Christians. I think the most dangerous person is this person. No guilt. Completely abiding by the law. No introspective questioning of themselves. This is what he's saying about himself. You knew who I was because of my status. By the outward markers of his Jewishness, that was his value system. And so this is why I'm calling it inside out. Because there really ain't no inside. It's all on the outside. I think this is descriptive of profound evil. This is, you know, the Adolf Eichmanns of the world. Adolf Eichmann, this is what he said about himself. He helped deliver Jews to the death camps. He said, I'm not guilty. He almost sounds like Paul when he's on trial in Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to die an innocent man. I feel good about what I did. Help kill six million Jews. This person's ambitions, their hopes, their desires are determined completely by the symbolic world in which they find themselves. They don't question the law. They just try to obey it. Now, I'm suspicious that all of us as children, that's sort of where we were at. You know, we were all like little petty bureaucrats. Step on a crack and you'll break your mother's back. But I think most of us mature out of that. And we realize that we need to question some things. That there is evil and sometimes there's injustice. And the social order then, the values that are handed down to us, may not address that. In psychoanalysis, there's a name for this kind of person, and it's, it is dubbed a masculine, and not because it pertains to gender, but because it's a complete identification with authority, societal authority, you know, father figures, the cultural order. Paul describes this type, he says, the law dominates this man for whatever time he lives. That's all he knows. And Paul will identify this type as ignorant, he can't comprehend the basic things about himself. He has an incapacity to discern evil. That's what Paul is saying about himself. There is a fusion between sin and the law. So that even as Paul was doing it, even as he was the chief of sinners, that was precisely when there was no guilt. He felt himself innocent. He describes this in a parallel passage in Galatians. He says his zeal for the law and his advancement in Judaism were marked by his persecution of the church and his desire to destroy it. So Paul is saying two things about himself. I was perfect, guiltless. My conscience was clear and I was the chief of sinners. We should be warned that when we imagine that we are innocent, when we cannot question a situation, for Paul this was the marker of evil. This is how he's saying that the law didn't help in this situation. It was due to his zeal for the law that caused him to be evil. Let me state it in a kind of perverse way, that what Paul is saying is his morality was his evil. His morality was his immorality. 
the social system, the law, the thing that he understood was evil and he adhered to it. That's the worst condition you can be in. As he advanced in keeping the law in Judaism, he advanced in participation in evil. The value systems that are given to us as good and the way in which we'll achieve value as human beings may in fact be the way that we'll make progress in being evil and more evil and more evil until there ain't nothing left. It did not occur to Paul the Pharisee that there was a reality which exceeded the measure of the law. And clearly Paul is not imagining that he rightly perceived the law. The law is not the problem. He says in the passage that he had confidence in the flesh. That's type one, right? Let's go to type two that Paul is describing. Somebody who questions the cultural, the symbolic order, but this questioning and challenging becomes definitive of this individual. I think this is chapter seven. Paul says, I do what I don't want to do. This individual is torn, continually torn, tossed about by their orientation or really their disorientation to the law. Maybe the second type, I think we can make progress morally. First type, law keeping, conscious is clear, evil, that's probably the bottom of the scale, right? I think these are our cultural icons. The people who excel are in danger of being the most evil. I think the second type is a step up morally, maybe a step up spiritually. They're a tormented individual. They're consumed with their personal struggles. Sometimes these folks, maybe they kind of bring a breath of fresh air into their life because they challenge the cultural norms. And we say, well, I never thought of that. But if that's all you do, it can be exhausting. You know, if you just challenge everything and you imagine that freedom is throwing off all the fetters, you're just going to kick over all the traces. You're not going to accept anything. Ironically, you're still defined by the law. It's a kind of transgressive questioning of the law. But it's still the law that defines them. And so this radicalized freedom, you know, it could be philosophical, it could be political, social. I think it's often sexual. Think of the democratic revolutions, the American Revolution. They're going to throw off all the fetters, the Marxist Revolution, the French Revolution. But think of the sexual revolution or the gender revolution. You're just going to throw off all constraint. Well, there ain't nothing left if you're just continually attacking. And you're still defined by the same structure. And that's Paul's point. The possibility of reconstructing from scratch what it means to be human just unleashes a plague of possibility. This is Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher of the 19th century. He talks about beyond good and evil. We need to throw off everything. Unchained from the world's sun. There is no sinner. It describes a kind of philosophical realization, but I think it describes a nearly unbearable psychology and a kind of personality disorder in psychoanalysis or in psychology. This agonistic questioning, they identify this as obsessional neurosis. You just become obsessed. Think here of the Cartesian cogito. I think, I think, therefore I am, but don't stop thinking because you ain't if you don't think. It's structured in hysteria around human sexuality. Am I a man? Or am I a woman? Or what is a woman? And so the problem of these first two subjects, I think this sort of covers everything. The problem is that their life is defined by the symbolic order, the cultural order. 
And this order might be associated with law, with culture, with normative values, maybe just language. And the problem is, how do you suspend this order so that a person's life is not spent artificially, just fighting against things that in fact are a construct? Slavery, bondage, deception. This is the way the Bible describes this. I think it's what it's talking about when it's talking about sin. And exodus, redemption, truth are the picture then of the problem and the solution. And so new birth. I think that when Paul is talking about peace in the body of Christ, here is new birth, recreation, adoption. In other words, it's going to require a complete revolution in your personality and in the understanding of who you are. At its most radical, we've talked about it in Ephesians, it's a shift in the cosmic order. Or it's a shift in one body, one organization of the personality, the body of death in Paul's depiction, to another kind of body, the body of Christ. Now the movement is not away from embodiment, but towards a different sort of being embodied, a different sort of world. And this is what Paul pictures in both Colossians and Ephesians. He says it's in and through Christ's flesh. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body, Colossians 1.22. The passage we read in Ephesians, he's abolished the enmity in his flesh. That's interesting. The enmity with the law, the symbolic order, is taken up. You know, that is the sickness of the self, that it is this hostility. And that's what Christ has undone. He's cured, if we want to think about it in terms of a disease. He's cured the disease that afflicts humankind. And to state it succinctly is that that system is death, right? It's a kind of slow death. And now we have life, and we have life from God. Life always just comes from God. Where we imagine life comes from the law, that's a, a deception. Life comes from our culture. Life comes from, oh, if I could just excel at something. And this is revealed then through Christ, this life in Christ, through the incarnation specifically. When we become participants then through the body of Christ, we participate in life at a basic level. And it's to give absolute significance to embodiment. Where the human body is written over with the law, it appears, you know, well, it's just a medium for something else. Culture, the law, the symbolic order. But the body is not a medium. I think that's what's being described here. This means that the body of Christ, it's a real world incarnate situation. The, you know, we've talked about the best picture of the soul is the body. And that's because we are human bodies. That's the way we have communion and communication in the world. But we are dispossessed of, in a profound sense sort of like we were talking in Sunday school go and be filled and satisfied well that doesn't help anybody you need to actually give them a drink of water you need to actually give them some food love is always embodied it's something you do and so the first two sorts of subject inhabit a world I think that ironically is controlled by the flesh but you know the, the Bible uses the word flesh in two ways did you notice that here in the passage we read, flesh is a good thing. Christ is resolving something in the flesh. But where the flesh becomes a principle unto itself, it's a bad thing. And of course the idea is that we assign a significance to the flesh 
a principle that it cannot bear, an alien principle. And Paul describes it as giving rise to hostility as it pits the self against the self. He says the law of the, my, the flesh is pitted against the law of my mind. And so the self is against God, against the self, against others. And there is a sense then in Christ in which we're restored to ourselves. I think our tendency is to be disincarnate. Christ is incarnate. And we then become participants in the continuation of the incarnation of Christ. Through his peace, we become incarnate. Peace is restored. The dividing wall of hostility is broken down. In our own lives, life reveals itself through the flesh. I'm just saying a basic thing here. We experience life from the point of view of our first order experience. Everything else is a kind of at a distance. Is God at a distance? Do we perceive God like one more object? Or do we perceive God like we experience life itself as a first order experience? I think that's what Paul is describing. The flesh is not an obstacle to our identity with God, to experiencing God, to enacting the word in our life. And this explains John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. The flesh is a revelation of who God is. So it's not that Jesus is just one more body among others, but his enfleshment is the word that is the revelation. The word became flesh is not to add something else to the word, but rather it's to say that God has revealed himself to us. It's a pure revelation. Ordinary words, there is always the possibility of duplicity, of a misrecognition. But because the word has become in, incarnate in Christ's flesh, there is an immediate identification. When you drink this water of life, when you attain this peace, that is a kind of self-confirmation of Christianity. I think we spend a lot of time thinking we need to prove this thing. This is one of those things that proves itself in our lives by the peace that it brings. This is the true cogito. I have peace. I have love. I have life. Therefore I am. Those who eat my flesh, Jesus says, and drink my blood have eternal life. And so the danger is that we might reduce the body of Jesus or dismiss the primary significance of the incarnation. Step one is to recognize, acknowledge the primacy of the incarnation. The story of Jesus is not something distant or a kind of shadow or something removed from God. This is the story of the Trinity. The mission of Jesus is the eternal generation of the Son that we encounter the imminent person of God in Jesus. There's nothing shadowy, analogous, secondary about it. Jesus is the reality of God incarnate. And Jesus is the absolute truth and an absolute morality, as we talked last week. He is the mystery of God revealed, as Paul said. And so this mystery does not unfold from a fleshless, heavenly realm, but from an embodied realm. He's made peace in his body through his blood. There is the reconciliation. And there, in turn, all human bodies, human situatedness, are accorded their full meaning. There is an affirmation of our humanity in the humanity of Christ. God became human, and humans then have access to who God is. 
And this reconstituted world is through the flesh. It's determined by the incarnate Christ. And so the world is not a symbolic order pointing somewhere else. There is a final meaning that inheres in the world. The cup of water that you give, the piece of bread that you give, the love that you show is of eternal significance. And that, I think, is what we're put here for, that we can participate in things that are eternally significant. Now, there is a world where, you know, where law reigns. Well, where law reigns, the significance is leaked out of the immediate situation. In Christ's embodied life, we have immediate access then, as Paul says, to doing what we should do. In other words, it's not a law to follow Christ. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What should we do? The good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. What we are to do flows from the person of Christ. It flows from the body of Christ, from the church. His body and our body, our human embodiment, is the place from which absolute truth, absolute morality flows. Not from a transcendent law or a vague situational principle. And the implication is the body is not a tool or a medium for something else, a megaphone for the voice, a container for the brain, that we can just manipulate it. What we do with our bodies is of eternal significance. The flesh of the body is our incorporation into Christ, into the world, into community, into communion, into communication. And all of those words are just another way of saying love. If you're going to love someone, you can't do it just in your head. You can't just think loving thoughts. You have to enact that love. And so the hostility of the flesh written over by the law is undone in Christ. And this is the significance. You know, Paul talks about the dead letter and being inscribed. The dead letter is inscribed on the flesh. That hostility is undone. And we are restored now in Christ Jesus. You who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so as we inhabit the body, his body, I think we inhabit our bodies. We're no longer divided in ourselves. We're no longer divided from one another. We're no longer divided from God. He himself, he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Entering this peace is synonymous with life. We have life. That is a first order experience. We have meaning. It's a first order experience. It is its own ground of meaning. It's self-validating. It's self-evident. It's not a truth that refers elsewhere or that mediates something else. This truth is without the gap. I think, therefore I am. No, as the life is the word and we dwell in the word, we have access to life. So there's no gap. And as it is a word in flesh, we have direct access to life and the realization of the experience of life. I believe that's what it means when he says, I am peace, I bring peace, I bring life, I bring love. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.